You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is nutritionist and best-selling author, Sean Stevenson, and I've got a question for you. What do you think of when you hear the words belly fat? Now, is belly fat something that has to do with vanity or is it something to do with our overall health? Now, we're gonna be unpacking belly fat today in a way that you might have never heard before. We're gonna look at what belly fat actually is and how the process of fat loss, specifically targeting belly fat, is that even possible? We're gonna be looking into that as well. So today's episode is all about having a good relationship with your BFF, not your best friend forever, your belly fat focus. Because awareness really is the first domino, understanding how all of this stuff really works and stacking conditions in our favor to make sure that we have good metabolic health moving forward. Now, our special guest is an absolute expert when it comes to metabolic health. And when you hear his story and where he came from, what he's gone through with his own metabolic health, it is going to trip you out. It is an incredible story. But when I went to see him recently, to do an interview for his incredible platform, I saw something there that is also at my studio that I share with my guests. And it has to do with how our cells are communicating. Now, one of the most essential things that enables our cells to literally talk to each other, that enables signal transduction, are electrolytes. Electrolytes are minerals that carry an electric charge. Now there's a certain electrolyte that has gotten drug through the media, through popular culture, and really framed as a villain. And that electrolyte is sodium. Now according to the FDA, over 70% of the sodium in the average American's diet is coming from ultra-processed fake foods. It's coming from ultra-processed foods from things like Pop-Tarts and potato chips and the list goes on and on, fast foods. This is where we're getting the bulk of our sodium intake, very low quality sodium and really a one trick pony because there isn't just one type of electrolyte or one type of sodium. Sodium is one form of a salt. There's also potassium salts. There's also magnesium salts. There's many forms of magnesium, many forms of sodium that highly refined sodium found in ultra processed foods, that can be problematic, absolutely. But what happens when we start to shift away from having a diet largely made up of these ultra processed foods and we're eating more real foods? Are we certain that we're getting the sodium that our cells really need to have a high level of communication and also to protect our metabolic health? Because a meta-analysis published in the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews uncovered that study participants placed on a low sodium diet did have slightly lower blood pressure in the short term because that's what we often think about when reducing the sodium is because of hypertension. So they found that lowering sodium intake did slightly lower blood pressure in the short term. But they found that restricted sodium also led in the more medium to longer term eventually led to elevated triglycerides or blood fats, elevated stress hormones, and accordingly, elevated blood pressure. So short-term reducing sodium reduces blood pressure. But if you do that for too long, blood pressure is going to be elevated. So there's a balance here. We need sodium. It is a 
critical nutrient to human health, but we don't want it coming in in that one-trick pony version from ultra-processed foods predominantly. And also, a study that was published in the journal Metabolism that was done by researchers at Harvard Medical School found that low salt intake directly increases insulin resistance in healthy test subjects. So with that being said, make sure that we're eating foods that are naturally rich in sodium, but also what I saw at my special guest recording studio, what we have here at our studio is the electrolytes from Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model and you're going to get the highest quality electrolyte supplement in the world. And they're also, by the way, with every electrolyte purchase, they're going to send you a free bonus pack, a free gift as well. Now, a fascinating study published in the journal Neuron found that magnesium, which is one of the other electrolytes in elements, incredible ratios, magnesium is able to restore critical brain plasticity and improve our cognitive function. All right, so our brain is critically dependent on sodium, magnesium, and potassium is the other key electrolyte in this equation. And Element has hundreds of thousands of data points on the optimal ratio of these electrolytes. And by the way, professional sports teams in all professional sports are utilizing Element now. Just because contractually they gotta have Gatorade on the outside of that container on the sidelines, I'm telling you right now, I've got the inside information here many professional teams are now utilizing Element. And I know this because these high-level athletes and teams are now partnering with Element. So again, it's something really special. It's getting away from all the highly refined sugar that's unnecessary to have in our electrolyte supplements and just delivering the high-quality electrolytes that our bodies need to perform. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model for a special gift of electrolytes with every purchase. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, His Knowledge and Insight is Invaluable by Mrs. Peastew. I discovered Sean on Cynthia Thurlow's podcast and was instantly drawn in. He's so down to earth and you can tell he really cares about people and their health. This year, I started a health journey after losing my mother to cancer and gaining a lot of weight. I've made so many positive changes in the past six months to my diet and lifestyle and have lost 30 pounds. I find Sean's knowledge and insight to be an invaluable addition to the podcast and books I listen to on a daily basis. I can't wait to get my cookbook. So glad I found this guy. Oh, wow. I'm so glad you found me as well. And thank you so much for sharing your voice and sharing your story. Man, that's so powerful. Thank you so much. And if you have to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. And without further ado, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Thomas DeLauer is an expert in diet, nutrition, and mindset. And he's one of the most watched fitness experts in the world on YouTube and social media. Now, what I really love about Thomas's approach is that it's backed by science. He's utilizing the latest peer-reviewed data to affirm certain points and also being able to examine and cross-examine different ideas because one of the interesting realities right now is that there's affirmative data on just about every perspective. And so looking at what is the majority of the data saying, what could be most helpful for people right now? And in particular, in this conversation about belly fat. So let's dive in this conversation with the amazing 
Thomas DeLauer. All right, Thomas, we got you here in the studios. Good to see you, man. How are you? Good to see you, man. Thanks for having me. Listen, we got to talk about belly fat. We got to talk about the secrets that should not be a secret. This is something that has been plaguing our society recently, our expanding waistlines, but there's a science behind all of this stuff. And for me, it's always about what is it? What are we dealing with? So let's talk about belly fat. This is one of the things that's really plaguing our society right now. And working as a nutritionist for many years, people would come in, it's just really the, the biggest thing that people wanted to address. And a lot of times people would be content with having different health conditions as long as they didn't have belly fat. But belly fat can actually be a big reason behind a lot of our chronic conditions. So let's break down and talk about first and foremost, what is belly fat really? Yeah, man, we, we got to break it down into kind of two categories first, because if you were to do like a Google search for belly fat, right? The first thing that's going to pop up is is really just probably all this clickbaity stuff talking about like, oh, this is going to reduce belly fat. This causes it at the very core of belly fat kind of the scientific term for it is more central adiposity, right? It's where for whatever reason, which we can talk about reasons in a little bit, you have this propensity to store most of your fat around your midsection. And most of the literature does suggest that central adiposity is linked to a number of different you know, health risk factors, right? So then it kind of begs the question because people will say, well, it's just a matter of, you know, like your genetics and you're just going to store fat around the belly fat region just because it's uh, it's your genetics. But then there's these other correlative links that show like, okay, well, eating certain kinds of foods, eating high amounts of high fructose corn syrup and this and that is gonna lead to more central adiposity. So you have to really like look deep to understand that, okay, there are some things that might directly contribute to belly fat. But putting that aside for a second, one of the things that people get confused with when they're looking at belly fat is belly fat versus visceral belly fat, right? Visceral belly fat is the fat that isn't necessarily like the typical jiggly subcutaneous fat, but it's the fat that is the true culprit. That is the one that is legitimately linked to health conditions. And although central adiposity, like having fat around the midsection is not good and certainly is bad, when it comes down to the correlative links with disease states, it's the visceral belly fat that's the real problem. But what ends up happening with a lot of people is they'll have a lot of visceral fat and that's going to protrude their stomach. And then whatever fat they do accumulate subcutaneously, just like underneath the skin, the typical fat, it's going to protrude more and look like more. Uh, that being said, we've all experienced or we've seen people or we know people that are just seem to disproportionately store fat in their midsection. And there's some literature that had uh, even talked about women having like gluteofemoral fat, like fat around their, their buttocks and their legs, actually being like cardiometabolic protective compared to central adiposity. So like in women specifically, if they had fat around their hips and legs to a degree, if they weren't morbidly obese, it was actually cardioprotective. But once the fat was soaring up higher, it was problematic. And when you reverse engineer a lot of those diets, you do see a lot of things. You see a lot of you know uh, comorbidities. You see a lot of high glucose. You see a lot of hypertension. You see a lot of these things that then if you really want to get down to it, you have to do your homework. You have to kind of reverse engineer this. And that's where you get out into somewhat anecdotal land. But you say, okay, we know that visceral adiposity is bad. What are the main things that lead to you know, visceral adipose tissue? And right now, 
in addition to just a simple caloric surplus. It's in a hypercaloric state. It's going to be high amounts of trans fats, high amounts of saturated fat, and or high amounts of fructose. Now, people hear fructose, they say, oh my gosh, I got to get rid of all the fruit. And we're talking a completely different situation. We're talking concentrated amounts of fructose while you're already in a caloric surplus. So we can unpack those in whatever direction you want to go, because there's a lot to be said about belly fat, uh, especially if you're going to be nuanced and not clickbaity with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, there's something really unique about belly fat as well and the way that our body is storing that energy. And there's even different receptor sites that are located in that region and also different hormones are gonna be interacting with our belly fat. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, man, so that's where it gets wild. So you have what are called glucocorticoid receptors. Okay, glucocorticoid receptors are extremely sensitive to cortisol. Now, you hear the word cortisol and like the first thing that pops to mind for me is like those commercials in the, do you remember those commercials like in the 90s that were like, uh, I don't know, they're all kind of late night infomercial type things where it's like, cortisol the starvation hormone it's going to make you like gain all this fat and this and that first of all cortisol can be equally fat burning as it can be fat storing right it's yeah. a stress hormone that can actually help you burn fat if it's at the right time and you, so we should never be demonizing cortisol but there's a couple situations where cortisol is exceptionally bad one when it's chronically elevated okay but two cortisol does not usually increase in tandem with insulin. That is a very unique situation that is kind of almost a phenomenon to our own era. In other words, when you're stressed and you also spike your insulin is when you run the risk of storing fat easier, right? And the reason that that happens is because specifically in the belly fat or specifically in the visceral belly fat, there are glucocorticoid receptors, which means that they are much more sensitive to that cortisol response. So it makes it much easier for fat to accumulate based upon cortisol kind of triggering these uh, glucocorticoid receptors. So basically, in human terms, it blunts lipolysis from occurring. It stops the fat mobilization from occurring at the belly fat area. So in theory, you could unpack that a little bit more and say, okay, if it's stopping lipolysis, then theoretically, one could be still burning fat elsewhere but potentially not burning it there, right? Which kind of helps us understand the question of why there's so many people that are like skinny fat and like, mm. they're like, I've done everything, but it's this last bit here, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, that's not scientifically rooted, right? That is lots of little pieces that you have to kind of put together because it's a very hard cohort to study in like a metabolic war to try to figure out like what directly isolates belly fat. Yeah, that's so fascinating, right? You know, again, we have this phenomenon of being quote skinny fat we also have a phenomenon of what we've dubbed as chubby muscles, where we have a lot of intramuscular, <laughs> intramuscular fat, yeah. kind of marbling of a steak. We're a little bit more marbled yeah. because of this um, really interesting interaction with fat and muscle. We think of them as kind of being dichotomous, but it can be a fuel source for our muscles. But when it happens in abundance, we start to have some problems, yeah. you know? And so now we've got very specific metabolic issues happening you know, with excessive intramuscular fat, visceral fat, subcutaneous fat. But you miss, mentioned something so fascinating, which is storing fat in certain places can be protective of our health, potentially, and specifically noted in women, but there's some thick guys out there too, mm -hmm. as well. But specifically, this for me is gonna be pointing to the ability also 
for us to make some shifts and not to villainize fat, by the way. We gotta make that clear, just like not villainizing cortisol. But we want to, of course, having been too lean, for example, which is not the concern for a lot of people, we can lose out on a vital resource, right? Something that can help with our nervous system and be a potential useful source for different things, cognitive function, whatnot. But more importantly, we want to focus on building muscle as well. And so I wanna circle back and talk about exercise because specifically around the, the hips and the thighs and that kind of stuff, a lot of potential there for building muscle and um, kind of our metabolic furnace. So I wanna circle back and talk about exercise in a moment, but I wanna talk about the storing of this caloric energy that is kind of getting targeted more to our belly fat. You mentioned trans fats, you mentioned saturated fats, and you mentioned fructose. So let's unpack these each one of these. Let's start with trans fats. Yeah, I mean, trans fats are just, no matter who you are on the nutritional spectrum, all these different uh, you know tribes that combat one another, right? You know, vegan, this, that, whatever. One thing we all kind of agree on is that trans fats, in the way of not the naturally occurring trans fats that are in like a little bit of steak or something like that or a burger. I'm talking about hydrogenated oils, partially hydrogenated stuff, the margarine, things like that. There are what are called CIS bonds in those fats that are, they take 40 to 50 days to fully break down in the body. So first and foremost, they take a long time for the body to fully break them down. Now, in case people don't know, like a trans fat is a fat that is artificially made stable. Okay, so if you have uh, an unsaturated fat that's like an oil and you put it into a lab and you artificially saturate the bonds of that oil, you're basically making that oil a solid. Mm -hmm. And you do that in an effort to make something more shelf stable. So it's in a lot of the processed stuff that we see on the shelves today. Well, what happens is those trans fats trigger quite an inflammatory cascade. And the simplest way to explain it for the sake of, of, of this podcast is they're so difficult for the body to assimilate and they're such an unnatural compound that it triggers a degree of inflammation. And there's quite a bit, a lot of evidence suggesting that it allows for what are called lipopolysaccharides, LPS, uh, which are basically compounds in the gut that leak through the gut and ultimately get into the bloodstream and trigger an inflammatory cascade that happens there. We've all probably heard the overmarketed term leaky gut before, and unfortunately it is overhyped and overmarketed and therefore people tune it out, but it is a very real thing. And that leaky gut is when the junction proteins in your gut become so either atrophied or dead, or they go through apoptosis or they uh, denature in some way to the point where what would normally be this hermetically sealed environment of your gut now has the ability for particles that are larger to slip through. And when this happens, the result is inflammation because you've got more that your body has to deal with that it's kind of unfamiliar with dealing with. Well, trans fats are a heavy, heavy link with this. So what happens is, I mean, we a lot of us know the whole idea behind inflammation at a very simple level, and we won't go crazy detail because it's beyond my pay grade, but essentially uh, you've got this heightened immune response that happens as a result of just basically dealing with something that is a little bit out of the ordinary. But when this happens, you have a high degree of uh, interference that happens. So insulin resistance, all these things metabolically become disrupted. 
That is one way in which visceral fat is formed from trans fats. And there's also some preliminary evidence suggesting that it just flat out stores easier uh, because it's harder to break down. You know, fatty acids, when you consume a fat, you know, it's going to get broken down. It's going to get broken down into fatty acids and then broken down into a glycerol backbone. And, you know, these components that the body can assimilate and use, but a trans fat is a Franken food. It's not a real food, right? So mm -hmm. the body is like, wait a minute, we lack the normal enzymes to kind of break this down, which, you know, and say what you want about the FDA, at least they even tried to kind of outlaw trans fats, but in an effort in doing so, all they did is say, okay, well, you have to limit the amount per serving. Okay. So what do they do? They just decrease the serving size. So it's like, if you go and you get some like peanut butter and it says it's got partially hydrogenated soybean oil, that is a game on that is a trans fat margarine shortening that is pure dang trans fat so sometimes people say well it's safe we don't because it's, it's illegal now like it's a, you can't be putting it in food no it's you got to read the fine print you, they limited the amount per serving so they just lessen the serving sizes uh so the trans fats is, as a whole the bodies has a very hard time breaking them down and there's some studies in rhesus monkeys that demonstrate that um it's a scary world with those yeah yeah you know, being that these are not newly invented per se, you know, as you mentioned, there's some naturally occurring trans fats, but in the quantities that we're seeing today and utilizing technology to create this new compound, we're seeing also this emergence of this new category of, of assaults on our systems, which are these obesogens. And so some researchers at Boston University had pointed this out uh, a couple years ago and looking at like basically the title of the paper was is our food making us fat is our food making us sick and identifying this category this emerging category of obesogens that go beyond just the kind of caloric management piece of belly fat accumulation and looking at are there specific compounds that are causing us to gain weight like just by their nature their interaction with human metabolism is creating dysfunction and trans fats are sitting nicely in that category and thank you for mentioning the serving size piece. This is real talk. This was like almost 20 years ago now. I was working at the university gym and I would bring, I had this cereal bar, this Kellogg cereal bar that looked like this super healthy thing. I thought I had it because I bought it because, you know, I was trying to be, you know, this fitness guy and it had partially hydrogenated oils in it. And once I came across a paper and I was, you know, I started digging into it and I found that this was around a time getting close to where New York restaurants was banning trans fat in their restaurants. And I was like, why are they doing that? And then I saw it was in my food. And then I started to dig into this and I was teaching people coming into the gym about this like crazy for years. This was almost 20 years ago. And you just mentioned it is still in our food supply, but there was a crafty little trick of making it with the, you know, the serving sizes and a certain allowable amount and that crafty trick is, you know, we might get a, a bag of, you know, whatever it is, potato chips or cookies or whatever it is, knowing that that one bag is a typical serving size. But then they'll say it's four serving sizes, right? Serving size, one cookie. You know, <laughs> like nobody's doing that with these little cookies. You're eating like 10 of them. And so that's a, another way, again, it's just like so rampant in our food supply. And trans fat is one thing. You also mentioned saturated fat as well. And again, I think we're gonna probably hear there's naturally occurring saturated fat versus something else. There's also just flat out too much. You know, it's like saturated fat is one of these things where 
especially in the world of overnutrition. And this is the operative thing here because like people could could cherry pick this and, and, and say certain things, but the reality is is that in the world of overnutrition, when you're 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 already above maintenance calories, things change drastically and it's not apples to apples with different macronutrients and different things. You know, if you are at your maintenance calories, if you need to burn 3,000 uh, and eat 3,000 to have equilibrium, if you eat 100 calories more of sugar, it might do something more than 100 calories of saturated fat. It might do, and even if you got down to, hey, you're going to gain the same amount of weight, we could put that aside for now because weight is one thing, but where you gain it, what it does can definitely be dictated by what it is. Where you gain so, it. Yep. The receptor sites in the gut. Precisely. And with the saturated fat, there is a lot of evidence suggesting that in an overnutrition state, that saturated fat essentially, I mean, to make it very simple, it kind of spills over, right? So like it makes it so that you ultimately can become more insulin resistant as a result of what's called lipotoxicity. So too much fat causes high blood sugar, just like too much sugar causes high blood sugar. And it does so by occupying receptor sites. It does so by once you reach a certain point, you have a cascade of inflammation that therefore stops the insulin receptor from being able to receive the signal from insulin. Insulin can't dock as much. What's interesting is that if you look at the kind of dichotomy of it, like the plant-based community versus say the, uh, even the low carb community, the low carb community demonizes the sugar side for being the culprit for high blood sugar, ultimately leading to visceral adipose tissue. The plant-based community demonizes the fat. And it's funny because you look at both sides and you're like, well, wait, you both have almost exactly equal arguments because when you're looking at the relationship between high glucose and visceral fat, because there are definitely evidence that suggests that like when glucose levels are high, insulin resistance and visceral fat closely tied together. So how did you re achieve insulin resistance? How did you get there? Oh, it's because you eat too much sugar. The other side saying it's because you eat too much fat. Well, it actually depends on how you get there in the first place. And uh, like m some of the smartest people that I know in this world have just kind of put it out there saying, the safest way to be in terms of your fa uh, your fatty acid composition is try to keep your saturated fat to about 25% or less of your total fat calories. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that excess saturated fat in a caloric surplus can lead to insulin resistance just as much as too much sugar can. It's hard for people to fathom because it's like two different axes, right? But they end up intertwining at the end of it. So it kind of coincides with the sugar equation too, the sugar, the fructose. With fructose, it's not the same as regular glucose, right? So with fructose, you go and eat an apple and get X amount of fructose. Where fructose becomes a problem is again, when we have so much that we're not utilizing it. Fructose can only contribute to what is called liver glycogen. So that means when you eat, if you theoretically just ate 20 apples right now, you better go out and go for a walk. Not because that fructose is going to spike your glucose. Fructose doesn't even affect your blood glucose. Fructose, well, it can to a certain degree through a wraparound way, but fructose goes directly through the portal vein to the liver. Okay. And the liver can only hold so much in the way of glycogen before it spills over and contributes to belly fat, de novo lipogenesis. So with fructose, it's a very slippery slope because you can only hold so much 
Now, when you exercise, one of the first places you pull from is your liver glycogen. So you could absolutely offset high amounts of fructose. But what we have here is a perfect storm of being sedentary, consuming high trans fats, high saturated fats, and a bunch of high fructose corn syrup, which is just concentrated fructose. So you've given yourself a triple whammy by eating most processed food while not being able to even remotely burn it off because you're sedentary. Mm. Oh my goodness. This isn't an accident, what's happening to our families, you know, to our society with this rampant increase in obesity, belly fat. What we're eating is targeting this phenomenon. It's just like it's stacking so many things against us. And if you think about it, humans have been overeating stuff forever. Whenever we get the chance to, our ancestors would overeat. But now we're overeating and something else is happening. And you just mentioned as well the sedentary component to it. But the food itself is affecting our metabolism in such a way that we're just kind of predisposed to not being able to process this the same way. And being that you mentioned exercise, there are certain forms of exercise, I would imagine, that's going to potentially target. And, you know, we've heard this in, in, in our field for many years about spot treating, right? That's one of the things people would come in and say, like, I just want to get rid of this. <laughs> they would literally grab it, grab their belly fat and just like kind of shake it at me. Uh, it's happened a time or 30, you know, and spot treating fat loss is not the way we want to think about it. But there are certain things that, again, because of those receptor sites, because of the impact of certain hormones, one of the coolest moments of this conversation so far is mentioning how cortisol can be potentially supportive in fat burning and also in fat storage, mm -hmm. depending on how all this stuff is functioning together. And it, it reminded me of how, even with our thyroid hormone, which is kind of like a hub of our metabolism, if cortisol is not on its job, you're not burning fat. Like it's that important for our metabolism. With that being said, what are some forms of exercise that we can do that could potentially help to reduce belly fat faster? Well, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a background of how we burn fat in the first place. That paints a picture. You know, we'll keep it simple. But we burn fat as a result, typically of catecholamines, which are things like adrenaline, norepinephrine, even cortisol. What these are are essentially catalysts that say, "Hey, there's a right the right amount of stress that it's time to." allow hormone sensitive lipase to snip off basically the glycerol backbone of a fat molecule. You've got triglyceride, which is fat in its storage form. When there's just enough stress, i.e. exercise, it's enough stress to say, hey, we need to snip off the glycerol backbone. So triglyceride is three fatty acid molecules bound to a glycerol molecule. Okay, that's literally fat in its storage form. Try three fatty acids, glyceride glycerol backbone. What happens is when you burn fat, hormone sensitive lipase, which is an enzyme that is triggered by adrenaline or cortisol or epinephrine, its job is to act like a pair of scissors and cut those fatty acid molecules off of the glycerol. So then you are left with three fatty acid molecules and they're floating around and they go into the mitochondria and get burned. They go into the cell and get burned. So you've got fat mobilization and fat burning, which are two different things, right? So 
that's how that works. And then the glycerol backbone, in case people are wondering where that goes, that eventually just goes to the liver. That goes through what's called gluconeogenesis, can get reconverted back into glucose. Uh, it can get broken down and excreted, a number of different things. Now, the reason that I mentioned that is, remember earlier I talked about the influence of cortisol on fat in a negative way. Well, if we reverse that whole situation, what is the best way that we can inflict just enough stress to get a high amount of concentrated stress so that our body burns more fat. And in this particular case, we could even theorize or speculate that it would be more belly fat based on what we know with the glucocorticoid receptors. And there is some evidence to back this up. However, I can't go on record and say that, hey, this is guaranteed gonna only burn belly fat. But the evidence is quite strong against like shorter bursts, interval training, that kind of fat loss means simply because you are inflicting quite a bit of stress, but you're doing it for a short amount of time that your body can actually recover from. The dose makes the poison. If you were to go out and you were to run 100, 100 meter repeats, you would be toast and your cortisol levels might be elevated to such a degree that it's actually counterproductive, right? Again, I can't say wholeheartedly that's gonna make you gain fat. It's probably not because you burned a lot of calories doing that, but it's a lot of stress on your body. It's about finding you know, the dose that makes the right poison in this case. And so it's like for high intensity interval training, the evidence has been suggesting that like, yeah, this is really, really effective, especially with visceral fat with these that have high glucocorticoid receptors. Now you get into territory that is, opens you up for scrutiny when you talk about this. So I'm careful with it, but there's also a lot of evidence that one of the reasons say fasting or intermittent fasting works for so many people is because when you go periods of time without eating, you're elevating those stress hormones. But again, it's one of those things where you don't want to be doing it for too long. So there's a large body of evidence. Uh, there's also, you know, counter bodies of evidence to this too, that suggests that, Hey, like when you do your training in a fasted state, perhaps you are increasing those catecholamines enough, just a little bit more that maybe you could squeak a little bit more fat reduction out of it that way. The reality of it is probably just the fact that you're in a deeper deficit at that point. So maybe it's just tapping into the fat a little bit more. And that begs the question of like, if you lose fat as a whole, you're gonna also lose belly fat. So it's hard to specifically spot reduce but in terms of exercise, your best bet for spot reduction is going to be aiming towards maybe like 30 second intervals with like a one to two minute recovery, then a 30 second interval, you know, high intensity and then recovery, high intensity and then recovery. Mm -hmm. All right. You mentioned a couple of really great things there. One of them was how our bodies release that energy, break down those stored fatty acids. And then you mentioned the potential because one, it's one thing to get released, it's another thing to get burned, right? So there can be a reabsorption yes, in some ways. And one of the forms of exercise seen to actually displace some of that released energy, you just mentioned this with the apples examples, is like you better go for a walk. That can be really helpful. So let's talk a little bit about that. We, we know high intensity interval training has been a popular term recently. Are we doing it? Maybe not. No. Maybe we haven't really got the memo, but I'm glad that you're, you're bringing this up in the context of like specifically targeting, targeting belly fat. But now there's the emergence, even though it's been around a long time, but more, more really intelligent people in this field are talking about lists. Let's talk about that. Heck yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's in my jam. I mean, like just a low intensity, steady state, just going for a walk, you know, zone one, zone two, 
I mean, you are in a category where as a percentage of the calories that you're burning, you're burning a heck of a lot more actual fat calories. Now, you got to be real here. Like if you go out for a run in zone three or pushing into zone four, the absolute amount of calories you're going to burn is going to be more. There's no denying that. Nobody's saying that going for a run for 60 minutes versus walking for 60 minutes, that walking is going to burn more calories. But as a percentage of the fuel utilized, you're using much more fat as a fuel source. The higher you start going up in the intensity, and this is coming from someone that loves my HIIT cardio, that is a runner. I love my high intensity cardio, but I also keep it real because I know that like if I go for an hour and a half walk and handle a bunch of you know, work calls and Zoom calls on a phone, the phone when I'm, I know that, hey man, I just walked for 90 minutes or two hours and I might've burned 600 calories or so, but almost all those calories are coming from fat because I haven't been tapping into a state where I'm going out of what's called beta oxidation. And a good way to kind of put this into a perspective that people might see, like caffeine, for example, caffeine mobilizes fat. That gets people excited because that thinks, oh, if I drink some caffeine, I'm going to be burning fat. Well, caffeine mobilizes the fat, but now it is your responsibility to take that fat and burn it. So the reason that caffeine is an effective fat loss aid is because it does part of the step for you, but it does not absolve you of your duties to still go burn the fat. It did mobilize it, but now it's available to be burned. So that's why I always say like, yeah, man, like go have a cup of coffee and then go for a walk, like utilize those lipids that you're circulating. And the reason that I mentioned that is just because it just illustrates this point, right? So it's like you go for a walk, like the fats are hopefully already somewhat liberated. One of the little hack that people might like too is like, there's some pretty solid evidence that sitting in a sauna mobilizes fat very effectively. Uh, it can also actually oxidize too because it's just your heart rate goes up. So sitting in a sauna, mobilizing fat, and then going for a walk right after you get out of the sauna. You've got fats mobilized. You've already got them circulating. It's a great time to go and oxidize them. And people ask, well, what would happen if I just went for a run in that case? Well, you'd still burn fat. But the problem is that you also start tapping into your carbohydrate stores. You run the risk of breaking down muscle, which we're now seeing as one of the largest predictive indicators of longevity and also leanness. So you want to do what you can to preserve muscle. It doesn't mean that you never do higher intensity cardio. But the nice thing about walking is, yeah, you're preserving muscle. You're very unlikely to break down a bunch of muscle going for a walk unless you are in a very severe deficit. Mm, so good, man. Now, you know about this at a level that a lot of people don't because you've been through this process of really utilizing your body as your masterpiece in many ways and really a, a, a field of research for yourself because of what you did to transform your own fitness. Let's talk about your superhero origin story, <laughs> all right? Because Again, your walking representation of what's possible because the fit guy that people tend to see and they get information from, they might not realize that you you came from a very, very diff different circumstance. So let's talk about that. Yeah, man, I, uh, I guess it's been about 12 years now, I guess like uh, 13, almost 13 years. I mean, I was pushing 300 pounds. So I was very, very overweight, morbidly obese. I was uh, officially type two diabetic. And uh, I managed to reverse that. And uh, yeah, and it was a really rough time of my life. I didn't think that it was a rough time of my life because my whole entire goal, I was very myopic. I was, I was in sort of the uh, private equity kind of hedge fund world. And my focus was that I was a young guy, 
make money, make money, make money, you know, at all costs. I can, I can take care of the rest when I'm older and, uh, you know, get healthy again when I'm older. I was drinking seven monster energy drinks a day in the fully leaded kind with the sugar and all. I was a mess, man. I was a mess. And, you know, it was just like money will solve all my problems. Let me do that. Like typical kind of like hard charging American guy, like living the dream. Right. And then I've told the story a million times, so I'll abbreviate it in case people have heard it. But, you know, there was one day like Jack in the Box was my thing. I was always going through Jack in the Box. Those Jack in the Box translucent tacos were like my jam. You know, if you can't hold it up and see the sunlight through it, it's not greasy enough. (laughs) Go back and dip it in the fryer again. And uh, so I used to I used to not go totally crazy because they were like two for 99 cents. So it was three for 99 cents. But either way, no, I would end up with four. So I'd end up usually eating four tacos. And uh, and one time I went through the drive through. And I pulled in a little stall right out of the drive-thru and someone, and I was on the other side of town. I used to always go on Thursdays. I had meetings on the other side of town. So I would go to the other side of town and that's when I would gorge on Jack in the Box because I was like, no one will see me here. Like they didn't see that I was 300 pounds and assume that I probably lived at Jack in the Box anyway. But on Thursdays, it was Jack in the Box day, right? So I go and I pull into this spot and this guy that I know, he's an acquaintance, but he's not a friend, right? Drives by in this green forerunner. And he just nonchalantly like acknowledges my existence. He just like holds his hands up and waves like, what's up, Tom? And I like face full of tacos and it hit me like a lead balloon that I'm like, it's not like this dude was my friend. He so nonchalantly waved at me like he was just like, that's exactly what I'd expect Thomas to do. What's up, man? It wasn't like, ah, my God, Thomas is a jack in the box. It was like, yeah, that's exactly where I expect him to be. And it just hit me like. I was like, oh my gosh, man, like how people see me was always important to me because it was not something that I'm proud of. But like as a kid, like I was always kind of a people pleaser. And like, so it was like I was driven into making a change pretty much by shame because I felt like, man, this is how people see me. No way. Here I am like trying to make all this money and live the American dream and impress people and do this shit. And like, I'm not hiding from anybody with this. So it was literally like that day that I'm just like, I don't want to go to Jack in the Box anymore. Like, screw this. And I think I did go like two more times, like over the next like couple of months, but it lost its appeal at that point because it was sexy for me when it was a secret, mm. right? It was like, this is, it was weird. It was almost mm. like I knew it was bad and it was like rebellious behavior from like my sort of eating disordered childhood. But then it was like, nah, the fun out, fun is out of this. And I mean, I literally just kind of turned my life around after that. And I knew the only way that I would change my life was if I got fucking obsessed because that's how I succeeded in everything else I did. That's how I was successful in track. That was how I was successful in cross country and rugby when, when I was a kid as an athlete. And it was how I was successful at a young age in the private equity world because I would get obsessed. So I was like, you know what, Thomas, you're going to get fucking obsessed with this stuff. The only problem is I got obsessed and it stuck because I really, really liked it and I still do it now, right? So, you know, it was that day at Jack in the Box, that that pivotal moment that paved sort of the Thomas Delauer that people see today. We talked about this before, about this, our alignment with Jack in the Box <laughs> and just how it's so blatantly like, they're literally, a Jack in the Box is meant to be a gift that scares the shit out of you, right? And it scares you, right? It's, um, you know, one of the things that I use as an example all the time, you know, those two for 99 cent tacos, getting four of them is cheaper than getting an avocado, which is, you know, the way that our economy is structured to make something like that possible, government subsidies. 
but you know, I'd pull up my most vivid memories of living in Ferguson, Missouri and eating fast food pretty much every day. The number one spot for me was Jack in the Box, that jumbo jack with cheese, the two for 99 cent tacos, the mozzarella sticks, you know. The curly fries. The curly fries, all right? (laughs) They're just out here, you know. And the funny thing was, it seemed like Jack in the Box was the least busy of all the other fast food places. It's just like people know, we because it's called Jack in the Crack. That was the nickname, yep. or right? Or my mom used to call it Jack in the Snatch. Jack, whoa, sh- mom. <laughs> I don't even know if we can say Either that. Either one, of course. I mean, hey, Snatch can mean many things. Shout out to Brad Pitt. Um, that's a movie, by the way, just never mind. All right, so with this being said, you know, it's, it's really interesting how different our stories can start in so many different ways. You know, yours was one through the lens of shame. And we don't want necessarily a a negative energy to be the thrust that gets us to move. But the problem we have today is that we tend to blanket label these emotions. Sometimes a negative emotion like that can be a, a catalyst for change. And eventually though, you fell in love with it. You know, so it's like reframing and using that energy towards something else. So I just wanna shout out to everybody who is in a place where they're struggling, trying to figure things out and looking for that button to push that's motivating them. And for you, it goes back even further. You said your disordered eating childhood. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, man, that was, uh... so I ran my first marathon when I was 11 years old and it was not that I, like I enjoyed it. I ran my first 10K when I was either five or six, right? So I was a runner from a very, very young age. So, and, and to flash forward for a second, like I'm sure that like my sort of extreme athletic background allowed me to lose weight a lot easier when the time came, right? Um, so I, I just want to make sure that people know that I, I'm aware that maybe it was easier for me because I was I was fit as a kid and I just like let it all go, right? I know there's people that have just struggled their whole life and and although I can't personally resonate with that, I just, I hear you. And I acknowledge that because like I've heard it before, like, well, you were fit. I know it, it is easier when you're fit before and you do that. Uh, so there was a lot of my childhood where I was so focused on being a runner that like being light and being skinny was very, very important. And there was a lot of anxiety in my childhood. And my mom and dad uh, got divorced when I was about 12 and through that time, it got really rocky. And when I was 13, when I got when I turned 14, uh, I went into what was called independent study, where I, I basically was essentially homeschooled, but it was through the school, so I could still participate in sports and still had electives classes on campus. But like my mom and dad went through a rough divorce, and my mom fell on hard times and had some stuff, and I had no choice but to like get my workers' permit and like work as many hours as my workers permit would allow me to legally work. And then I would go to another job and work under the table to help support mom and to also just pay for my own stuff while also going to school. It was a stressful time. And during that time I found like relief in abstaining from food. It was weird. It was like, I, I felt control by if I didn't eat, it was one thing I could control. And I remember like putting my, uh, fingers around my wrist and if I could if fingers around my wrist and I could if rattle my wrist around in my hands it was like a win and it wasn't because I wanted to have the skinniest arms in the world but it was like it was one thing I could control I'm like ah cool I'm doing something right I'm like starving myself 
you know, and I, I went to psychotherapy as a kid for it, right? It wasn't like it was, and it wasn't just for that. It was just like, there was a lot of stuff. When I was 13, when I was in eighth grade, um, I was never always pitching the name. What is it? Tricka, Tricka Nelia or whatever. When I was, I was pulling my hair out, right? So like I pulling gobs of my hair out and it was a laughing stock of middle school because I had just bald spots all over the place. For a while, I didn't even know I had them. I was pulling hair out. Of course, like you would think you would know you'd have bald spots, but I was just pulling hair out. And it wasn't until like kids were like, pointing i'm like oh my gosh i'm actually pulling my hair out so um you know i was a kid on low dose xanax just to like manage this stuff and it was a mess dude it was a mess and there's a lot of like as an adult i've gone back and I, like harbor resentment towards towards my mom for like oh did she drive this and then i realized like no my mom was doing the best that she could like she was a good mom she put us you know she, she encouraged us to do lots of interesting things some things were pretty extreme but she never put a gun to our head to do it you know it was like um like was just a kid you know a kid with issues that was dealt a, a pretty rough hand and i just got through it but then it's interesting because it wasn't until a couple of years ago or really in the last year that i've reversed like looked at this stuff and i'm like do you think that i like i i ended up so like obsessed and possibly overweight because it was almost like rebelling against my past right like it's just like an interesting like people do interesting mm -hmm. things like i went the complete other direction yeah. i went from being anorexic to just like this masochistic behavior of just eating my feelings and just diving into that, even though I knew it was terrible for me. Like I knew it was bad, but it didn't matter. Like it just didn't matter. And like, I almost wanted to, in a weird way, just be like, I'm sticking it to you parents for giving me a hard childhood. Right. And like, it was just a weird time. Right. And then, so I'm glad that I was able to have that course correction and I can look at it the way that I look at it now. Cause now with, you know, a six year old and a three year old at the time of us recording this, it's like, I'm very careful with how I, how I talk to them about food. Right. I don't, I don't dance around it like pathetically. I, I still hit things head on. Like they still need to know that some food is just, that's just not good. And that shouldn't be in our body. And it's a shame that it's out there. But at the same time, I handle it with grace because I know that they're going to be tempted by those things. And like, how do I, how do I teach them that food is fuel in a healthy way? So I'm like, maybe I can help change a generation that way. Right. So yeah, <laughs> it was a lot, man. Yeah, man. Thank you for sharing that. You know, again, people see you now and they might not realize all the things you've been through related to food. Yeah. You know, food is such a, huge part of our lives and our reality uh, because you know it's one of those things we got to eat and in our society today the things we're presented with as food is often not really food and so it's leading to all manner of dysfunction and there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that's happening and so that's why i'm so passionate about this and also you know a lot of this too and you and thank you for sharing that of like we go through that moment sometimes of thinking about the culture we came from and blame our parents or blame this or blame that. And it's not to say that we haven't gone through things, but it's realizing like the more I'm doing that, the more I'm outsourcing my power to change and kind of, you said the key word was course correct. You know, that combination of insights right there where what tends to happen if we don't have guidance is we tend to swing it like a pendulum, right? A lot of times we're just like our parents or complete opposite right or we're engaged in this one behavior and we swing right to the other and through grace through experience hopefully we land at a place of balance and not only did you do that but you're you're helping other people to do it and helping to reframe our motivations right so you mentioned 
you know, a potential negative catalyst, but also finding right now you've got a very positive catalyst with creating a, a positive model for your kids. Like that's so remarkable because what tends to happen, of course, is like they're going to pass on those character traits and we can make it easier for future generations just to be healthy. You know, just where it's just what we do, it's just how it is. Whereas right now it's the opposite. We've got a quick break coming up, we'll be right back. One of the major reasons that people give for not being able to cook home cooked meals on a consistent basis is not having the energy to do it. Energy can be one of our greatest assets and it can also be one of our greatest deficiencies. Obviously our lifestyle factors play a huge role in the availability that we have to access energy. But there are a few recent discoveries that are adding to the energy equation like few things ever have. Numerous studies, including a study published by the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology or the FACIP Journal, found that exogenous ketones can be up to 28% more efficient in generating energy than glucose alone. If this is about cognitive function, if this is about energy, you've got to utilize these ketones, but not just any run-of-the-mill ketone esters that had its time in the sun, but something far better has been brought to the world by HVMN. Go to hvmn.com forward slash model, and you're going to get 30% off your first subscription order of Ketone IQ. Ketone IQ is now clinically proven to improve our cognitive performance and also bolster our energy for sports performance. In fact, studies have found up to 15% increased mean power output after recovery by utilizing ketones. And the bioavailability of Ketone IQ is in a league of its own. Check out Ketone IQ today. Go to hvmn.com forward slash model for 30% off your first subscription order. Now back to the show. If you could, I would love to talk about, you've briefly touched on this throughout this conversation, but there's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of diet wars right now yeah. where different people as well-intentioned as they may be, who are a lot of times our friends and colleagues who believe that their diet framework is the way that humans should be eating. And so you mentioned, you know, we've got one group that's very high on vilifying carbohydrates, another group that's vilifying fats. And the reality is our ancestors ate food that contained all this stuff. And the question is who is right? And from my perspective, every they're all right and wrong as well. You know, again, it's, it's under the guise of trying to help people, but we're infighting about macronutrients when 60% of adults diet today in the United States is ultra processed fake food riddled with all those compounds you talked about earlier and synthetic versions of those things. And so let's talk a little bit about that, the, the, the diet wars and where should we really be pointing our attention? Let me, let me open this with a, a study that I'm sure you've heard of the uh, famed nature study on the, the monkeys that were eating a more whole food diet versus yeah. And, a re, and there's going to be a point why I mentioned this. There was a study done in nature that looked at monkeys, right? And they gave monkeys and before people like kind of poo poo the monkey thing, just like, remember that when you're looking at larger, like longevity studies, it's about as good as you're going to get when you're looking at monkeys, because the next best thing is rodents. The next best thing after that is going to be in vitro stuff because you can't put humans in a metabolic ward for 120 years and watch everything. 
but you can do that with monkeys as messed up as that might be you can do it with monkeys so this nature study took a look at monkeys and it gave them sort of a um, a diet that emulated what they would eat in the wild okay so like the kind of stuff they would eat um, they would give them uh varying sources of fat, varying sources of protein, uh, varying sources of carbohydrates. And they found that when they would give young, adult, and old, three separate categories of monkeys, a caloric deficit of 30%, it didn't do anything to their lifespan. It didn't change their lifespan. And here we've had this talk of caloric restriction is very important for lifespan, right? Very little changes occurred with these monkeys. There were some cardiometabolic improvements as far as their lipids were concerned, but even putting young monkeys in a calorically restricted state just didn't change their, their lifespan. But then you look at other studies, and there was another famed monkey study that looked at almost the exact same thing, except they gave the monkeys monkey chow, which was basically isolated singular protein, isolated, um, it was sugar and it was sucrose and uh, I can't remember the other carb source, uh, but it was basically just garbage carb sources, singular fat sources. When they put those monkeys in a caloric deficit, it did extend their lifespan. The reason that I mention this is because when you are eating cruddy food, clearly being in a deficit becomes much more important than when you're eating wholesome food. And this shines a light on the way we look today because 60 plus percent of our diet is processed food. So we require a deficit just to offset that. So you've got this large crowd of people that are saying like, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's just calories in calories out. And they're so spot on correct, but we're missing this point of us as human omnivores whether you're an omnivore today or not, our history was as omnivores, eating, eating everything we could just get our hands on, right? Various tribes, different indigenous tribes eating different groups of things. So let's just put down the fight for a second and realize that like, when we are not dealing with a crisis of abundance like we are now, almost anything in its natural form would go. Mm. I mean, it's like, eat the steak, eat the fat, eat the honey, eat this, like, enjoy it because you got food this wonderful glorious thing to celebrate over you got food but we're not there anymore now we need to celebrate when you abstain because we have too much right so hey i'm proud of myself i didn't eat all that chocolate cake like i you know hear those kinds of things we celebrate because we are able to abstain from something that we have so much of so the caloric restriction question is so much more important now but that's not enough for people because we need to take it further. We need to know what's best. And we're all just trying to find the best thing. But it's not sexy to say that all food is good as long as it's coming from just its whole form. That's not sexy. That doesn't sell. That doesn't, it doesn't sell. That doesn't get clicks. That doesn't uh, get attention. And I'm not saying the people that are creating the content to get the attention are even bad people. They're just trying to get by they're just doing their thing and they might sincerely feel passionate about that it, it, it's fine like it's not like they're just doing it for clicks like those people that that truly believe that like there are people that just that is their livelihood and they are so passionate about it so they're not wrong but what we're all missing here is that like if we all would bind together we could fight a war and we could actually stand a fighting chance but instead we're fighting each other it's like Guys, the, the fight is out there. 
why are we fighting in this fucking house? Like, we're all in this house. We're all human fucking beings, right? And like, sorry to cuss on that, but it's like, it pisses me off, man. Because this is like, the war is out there. It's like, you're vegan? Cool. Way for, good for you. Like, you're conscious of your health. You're carnivore? Good for you. You're conscious of your health. You're paleo, you're keto. We're all on the same team. Like, let's go get them. But instead, you're, you know, sibling rivalry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ronald McDonald is fucking everybody up <laughs> at the same time, you know? Wow. So with this being said, and thank you so much for directing our attention to something real. What are some things that we can focus on to make whatever diet framework or lifestyle choice focusing on real whole foods to make that more sustainable for us? Again, when the terrain out here is very different, what are some of the things that we can do that people can walk away with today for them to, yes, reduce some belly fat, but also just make our diet choices and our lifestyle more sustainable. Yeah, man. I'd say uh, first and foremost, whenever you possibly can, start your day with movement. Just because that that's like, you're, you're checking so many boxes there. Like when you start your day with movement, you are putting yourself in a spot where you set the framework for the day. You've also gotten the hard part out of the way. You've also set and sent a message to your family that you are important and that you are taking care of yourself and it sets the tone for them too. But it also triggers hormones and changes that happen throughout the day that might make you make better choices. So then it makes the second part, which is eating wholesome foods and shopping the perimeter and cooking at home, it makes that part that much easier, right? So that's number two is eat at home. like. You've got an amazing cookbook and that's not just a plug for you, right? It's just, it's a real thing. Like whether they pick up your cookbook or another cookbook, cook at home. They like, should probably pick up. They should probably cookbook. pick up yours. Yeah, probably just because it'll kick my ass on the way out if I say it. Like, no, <laughs> just but the, the reality is, is that just eating at home, like it's, I went through a phase when our kids were young where like we started to eat out more. Granted, like we would poke around it and we'd kind of make it work. We'd had our select things, but we were just tired, right? Mm -hmm. And I felt the connection of our family like break apart, right? But I also felt like it was like, my gosh, I'm like jumping over dollars to save nickels, like figuratively speaking with my health. Like I'm like doing and do all this stuff. It's so difficult. And we brought it back to cooking in the house. It was so much easier to maintain my body composition, my thought clearer. Um, I just, everything just came easy. I slept better. You don't have the mystery things The say what you want, but you know, like MSG keeps me wide awake. Like if I go out to eat and mm -hmm. I have MSG, I'm wired because mm -hmm. it's, it's, yep. it's an excitotoxin. It's designed to do that. So I feel amped. So that's a huge one there. You know, the other thing is just a simple grocery store trick, which a lot of people know, but that's just like, you know, shop the perimeter, right? The perimeter is where the magic happens. And the perimeter is where, uh, the limited shelf space, but that's all you really need, right? The stuff on the aisles, it's, it's the garbage. You don't really typically need the, uh, you know, the processed stuff. The, the frozen section's fine because there can be some good stuff in the frozen section, you know? And then, you know, additionally with that, it's like, if you're going to prep, prep like one part, the part that's most difficult for you. So this has been a trick of mine for a long time because meal prep is really difficult for people. They say, I don't want to meal prep because it's just too much to take on. Well, when you try to meal prep your carbs, your proteins, your fats, and you're thinking of it like a bodybuilder, it's daunting and it's depressing. But when you say like, okay, what is the hardest thing for me? And typically for people, it's like, it's hardest for me to get the protein in. It's hardest for me to, 
Okay, well then find your favorite cookbook, find whatever, and make up a bunch of just the protein part because that's the part, everything else you can fill in the gaps easy. Like you can, you can always microwave a sweet potato if you need to. You can always like cook up a bowl of rice. You can always grab an orange or an apple and get your carbs. You can always, it's easy to get those like ancillary things, but the protein is the toughest one. And if you can nail the protein, the rest kind of falls into place, at least from a meal perspective. So, but you know, some people are like, I have no problem getting protein. It's hard for me to find good, healthy carbohydrate sources. Okay. Then prep the carbs. So just prep the one thing that is the most difficult for you. It was an utter game changer for me because then it's like, now I go home, I've got my, I can grab my protein. I've got it. Okay. Wife made delicious turkey burgers. Boom. I got 12 of them. So that's no problem. All I need to do is fill in the gaps, but my one most important piece that protein is prepped and ready i love it so that's a game changer because a lot of times when we're obsessing about doing meal prep it's like it's the whole thing and it makes it more complicated just even making two proteins what if we what about that you know just throwing something in the crock pot maybe something in the oven then you got your proteins for the week you know that's a great tip because it, like you said it is generally much easier to like we could throw something in the rice cooker or whatever the case might be, but the protein is what tends to take more time in the preparation as well. So that's awesome. Start your day with movement, eat at home. Is there anything else? Those are the basic ones, man. I mean, I, we could get into the particulars of, you know, specific, you know, working out and everything like that. I would say if you had to like make a, a, a spreadsheet of like how you can kind of like carve up your workouts, I would say four days per week of doing some kind of cardiovascular training and three days a week of resistance training and have maybe two of them overlap so you have some rest days right it's just like you don't need to do anything crazy and like find that minimum effective dose because everyone wants to like go hog wild and like they're like i'm going to start a workout routine and it's like you can get by with two days a week of resistance training like it's totally fine like that minimum effective dose that leaves you feeling fresh that you can get down and play with the kids do things like create your environment, right? We talked, uh, you know, you were on my, my channel not that long ago and like we were talking about just walking and stuff. There was a study in, I think it was in uh, Endocrine Reviews that took a look at like walkable cities versus not walkable cities, okay? Not even looking at the demographics or how much the people walked. It was the mere size of the blocks or their sidewalks, things like that. It was purely like looking at that blueprint. Walkable cities had a 43% obesity rate, which is still sad, but the non-walkable cities had a 53% obesity rate. So 53 versus 43, and the non-walkable cities had a 30 to 50% higher diabetes risk. Simply by creating the environment that encourages movement, mm. right? Yeah. So little things that you can do, setting your gym shoes out in the morning, having your clothes ready, all these things that would take willpower, right? creating the environment that you establish new habits to walk more park further in the in the parking lot from the grocery store you know like take your phone calls while you're on a walk you just you got to create that environment because your environment dictates everything like you talk about the microculture in your home with food and stuff like that what about the fitness microculture in your mind like people say like when they move to houses that are like on highways where they can't go walk like they're like oh i used to be so healthy until i moved like to a place where I couldn't really walk. My wife and I just uh, bought a different house and the reason we bought it outside of it being a great home was, oh my gosh, this is the most, the walkability is amazing. This is gonna change our life because right now we're in a spot where we can walk but can't really walk to anywhere, you know? 
And so just not saying everyone has to get up and move, like literally move houses, but that, that environment is huge. Yeah, and just to think through that lens as well. And I, I love that so much, man. Can you let everybody know where they can connect with you, learn more? Yeah, man. Know. Uh, you know, Instagram is at Thomas DeLauer. YouTube, just type in Thomas DeLauer. Um, you know, it, what I usually tell people, I've got topics on just about everything, but metabolic health is usually my world. So anything specific to metabolic health, fasting, uh, whatever, just type in Thomas DeLauer and then whatever the topic is, right? So Thomas DeLauer belly fat, Thomas DeLauer cortisol, because we've got literally thousands of videos, but it's hard to search for them. So it's like, just kind of make it your routine to be like Thomas DeLauer and then whatever search term you're searching for. Yeah, you've created an incredible archive and you know, thank you so much for doing this work. And of course, first and foremost, the work on yourself <laughs> You know, it's so aspirational and amazing. You know, I don't know if you regularly check in because I mean, it's just mind blowing. Like to come from your childhood circumstances and you had a, you were working out here, you know, when you were a little kid and like going to school and like, that's not normal, man. You know, it's just like really remarkable. And to see your transformation in your perspective of food and nutrition and being able to teach and serve other people and also carrying this on with your kids and, you know, we're talking before the show, just even just us thinking about our family lives and, and all this stuff, it really matters and it matters more than ever. And like you being an example for so many other people and getting out and, sh and, and sharing your voice is like, it's just so special, man. So I just appreciate you for that. Appreciate that, man. Really. Awesome. Thomas DeLauer, everybody. Remember that fat is natural as long as you have natural fat. Whether we're talking about in food or on our bodies, we don't wanna villainize fat. It's okay to have a little bit of thickness. There's nothing wrong with that at all. We're just looking at not venturing into a place where we are harming our health by carrying excessive belly fat in particular because we know according to the data that carrying a lot of visceral fat in particular can be incredibly detrimental to our health, dramatically increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, the list goes on and on and on. We need to protect ourselves, protect our health, and protect the health of the people that we care about. So that's why this conversation is important. It's not about not having body fat. We all come in a variety of amazing shapes and sizes. What we wanna do is no matter what size or shape that we are at, express the best potential that we have by taking care of ourselves, by employing high quality movement, by being mindful of our sleep quality and managing stress in an effective way. And we can all get out of balance from time to time and that's okay, but it's making it so that our culture is that whenever we get out of balance, we find our way back into homeostasis. We find our way back into those ingredients that it really helped to have us have great outcomes when it comes to our genetic expression and our health overall. So it's totally natural to have fat as long as that fat is natural, all right? Now, of course, we've got some incredible masterclasses and world-class guests lined up and coming your way very, very soon. And there's an incredible resource out there for you right now at bookstores and online retailers nationwide, the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. So make sure to pick up a copy today. It is a confirmed USA Today national bestseller, number one cookbook, new release in the country. Ah, amazing. We've got empowering education around our eating culture with our friends and family and how that impacts our health outcomes. And of course, delicious, mind-blowing food as well. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day, 
eating amazing food with amazing people. And you're amazing, and I appreciate you so very much for tuning into the show today. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.